1: We're in a race
0: to make value work.
2: Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency based framework for health value, Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dr. David Carmouche, who is the president of the Oxner Health Network, the accountable care network of the massive Oxner Health System, the largest nonprofit academic healthcare system in Louisiana. It boasts 40 owned, managed, and affiliated hospitals and specialty hospitals, more than 100 health centers and urgent care centers, and nearly 25,000 employees, and more than 4,500 physicians.
0: You know, Eric, what I really like, and I think our listeners will appreciate, is that Dr. Karmouche views healthcare from three distinct perspectives, as a physician provider, as an executive for an insurance company, and as a leader in a health system. He's known as an expert in value-based care. He leads one of the top 25 performing accountable care organizations in the U.S., managing billions in care spend and generating millions in year-over-year shared
2: savings. Dr. David Carmouche is a recognized visionary leader in the arenas of healthcare delivery, population health, and payer systems. Let's go ahead and hear it from him as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. David Carmouche, it is so great to have you on the Race to Value podcast this week. Hey,
1: Eric, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. I love what you guys are doing, and it's an honor to be on.
2: Well, David, it's great to have you on the show, and I think you probably have more titles than anyone else we've ever had on the show before. You're the Executive Vice President of Value-Based Care and Network Operations for Oxner Health, where you run all the operations that are the underpinnings for the population health activities in the health system. You're the President of Oxnard Health Network, which is a statewide clinically integrated network of 2,700 physicians and 40 hospitals you're the senior vice president of community care of oxner health which oversees primary care and urgent care and all the occupational health service lines and all the population health programs you're also the executive director of oxner accountable care network or ocean which is one of the top 25 ACOs in the in the country so david you're really out kicking the rest of the value based care market and i just wanted to congratulate you on that and and i wanted to ask you if you learned How to outkick the market because of your days at Tulane. From what I understand, you were quite the unsung hero on the gridiron back in the day.
1: Okay, so I I know I've been set up clearly here, right? Uh, And I know exactly who the culprit (laughs) is, and I will be happy to take care of him later. Well, first of all, I think all of those titles are correct, except for one. I think the senior vice president title was uh, the title before the executive vice president title. What it all represents, frankly, is just our ability or our desire to aggregate the delivery assets that are important in value. So, uh, the networks that form the basis for our, our contracting with value-based payers, and then all of the services that have to go under there. We, we thought it was important to have that under a senior executive leader within the organization to both coordinate it, but also to kind of give credence to the importance to our organization. And so I, I am blessed to, to kind of wear many many hats, but but really all under the same umbrella. And as it goes for Tulane, look, I was an academic more than I was an athlete. I, I did have a a brief stint as a walk on kicker at Tulane, but uh, rapidly understood that my future was going to be in healthcare, not in athletics. So, thanks for asking about it.
2: <laughs> well, we're so pleased that you made that choice to enter into healthcare, and you know, I, I thought a great place to start our conversation today, David would it be to talk about the state of the value economy as a visionary thought leader on transformational healthcare delivery, you've spent your entire career in the relentless pursuit of value. And it seems, however, that the country may be a bit more reserved and fully embracing the value movement. I mean, for those that share your passion in advancing a value-based care in the country, we were all shocked a few weeks ago when CMMI announced that They would not be accepting a second round of applications for participation in the global and professional direct contracting alternative payment models. And in addition to this pause in the GPDC applications, we're also starting to see delays or pullbacks in certain new APMs. For example, the serious ill population component of the primary care first model is under review. The geo direct contracting model that was supposed to start next year is under review. The new kidney care choices APM that was supposed to start this year has now been pushed back to 2022, the community health access and rural transformation chart model, which has been established to reduce disparities in rural communities. That's been delayed. So David, at a time when the Medicare trust fund solvency is really requiring considerable innovation tests towards adopting higher risk Bearing models of care. How does halting this progression of more advanced APMs really signaling the market? I mean, as a national leader in value-based care, could you provide maybe your perspective on this seismic shift that we're trying to make in our industry? And are we moving fast enough to win this race to value? It's a
1: really great and insightful question. So first of all, I I did join the the board of the National Association of ACOs this year, and, and so do have at least that perspective now to add to my own perspective look i think there's the there's two things going on here from how i see it i think one there's the actual macroeconomic realities of baby boomers an aging population in the united states a medicare payment model that is a larger and larger payment source for most providers And as you mentioned, a trust fund that was essentially going to be uh, insolvent in 2026. Now, the estimates may be that's 2024, given the change in uh, employment during COVID and, and, and the reduction in revenues to the trust fund. So, The reality of it is is that Medicare is going to have to figure out a way to remain a viable payment model, and and I think there's a few ways it can do it. Obviously, it could raise the retirement age, which is going to be politically challenging. It could just globally reduce what it pays to providers, which I think is going to be challenging from a fee-for-service perspective, or it can continue to align incentives that engage physicians and providers, you know, more at large to manage spend and to actually help control healthcare costs. And so I think the one that makes the most sense, and I think the one that aligns stakeholders the best is the latter. And so as a a zealot for for value-based healthcare and value-based payment, I do believe that that is the best path forward still for Medicare. Now, how that happens, I think, is the debate. And there's a political you know, angle to this as well. So there's a change in administrations. There's new leaders at CMS, CMMI, HHS. I think there's been a flurry uh, of activity. You, you detailed many of the, of the programs that have been launched over the last several years. You know, Hopefully all this is is just a desire to kind of hit pause, to kind of scan the environment, see what we've learned through these pilot phases, and really coalesce around maybe a smaller set of models that can be deployed more more broadly and that have the greatest impact. So I am not ready to sit here and say that this administration is going to, to reverse course on value. I just don't think the realities of healthcare funding uh, at the Medicare federal level make that a, a real likelihood at all. But I do think that they that there have been so many models launched that there is probably a desire to to kind of hit pause and see if we want to double down on a couple of them. So I think that's how I see the world. I think that's how Oxter sees the world, and certainly in our market, we're in a you know in a state and in a region of the country that's not growing as fast as other parts of the country in terms of new commercial lives. So the payer mix for our delivery system is increasingly moving heavy into governmental payment away from commercial payment, and, and as most health systems, we historically made. Uh, our margin on the commercial side and, and largely subsidized the experience on the governmental payer side. And we, we just don't think that's tenable uh, long-term. And, and, and frankly, my whole division uh, at auctioner exists because of a belief that uh, we've got to create the equivalent of greater than fee-for-service reimbursement for Medicare, given its increasing role in our, in our global payment model.
0: David, I love the overview that you've given us, the vision. I'd like to go now and dive into the results of the Auctioner Health Network. And as we're speaking today, the results are official through the last performance year of 2019. In that last performance year, your CIN held 13 value-based agreements with over 400,000 lives under management and generated close to 24 million in shared savings through the ACO, which is an 81% increase in total savings since 2018. This also marked the third year that OHN received shared savings, which is an incredible feat. And from our research, we saw that there's additional value-based efforts and contracts that you've been involved in. We're thinking somewhere between 75 to 100 million in savings overall. And we also saw that there were several critical success factors that played into those results, likely reliably closing care gaps, like improving unnecessary ER care, forming an innovative partnership with a company, that dispatches EMTs to the home with backup telehealth capability and leveraging the population health capabilities in your Epic EMR system. Can you speak to the results that Auctioner Health Network and Ocean have had so far in your value based contract portfolio? And with more of your patient population moving into risk contracts, has Auctioner
1: Health now reached a tipping point for value? If you look across all of our value based contracts, the results are actually north of $100 million. So, it has become a very successful venture. And again, that's across Medicare Advantage, risk, Medicare shared savings through our ACO, uh, a set of commercial products that we have in the market as partnerships with some of the commercial payers, shared risk and shared savings agreements with most of the commercial payers in the market, pay for quality programs with both Medicaid and commercial payers. So across all of that, the economic return has been even more significant than what what I think that $23 or $24 million represents, which is certainly the ACO's experience. I think all of the things you mentioned as success factors are are true and important, but I want to maybe step back a second and and really talk a little bit more broadly about why I think we've been successful. And I, I think it starts first with a belief that our board has and that our CEO has that value is the way that we want to deliver care and be rewarded for care. So I think at the end of the day, if we, if we could have all of our payment there, we think that would be the best way to align our efforts to keep the population healthy and our own economic success over time. So that's number one. Number two, we have been therefore given resources To invest both from a leadership perspective and a care capability and and supporting services capability, that has powered some of our success. Third, we've got a large group practice, an employed group practice. We have 1,600 physicians that we employ. Obviously, we have the ability to change their incentives, to align their work, uh, and we've done a a significant amount of that specifically in primary care, but but also somewhat in, in specialty care. And so being able to move that large group, which is such a big part of both our ACO and OHN's performance, has been a real asset to helping drive our success. The other thing is Oxner had a health plan. We sold it a little over 15 years ago, but we haven't lost that muscle memory of what it took to drive health insurance success. And we have maintained full capitation for a large Medicare Advantage book of business since we sold the health plan. and. And so the organization has been oriented to risk for for quite a long time. And I I think that helps. But I can't say enough about the role of leadership and leaders who understand value at at driving our success. And I am very blessed to work alongside some very, very talented and experienced people. You know, we have someone on my team who uh, had a 30-year health plan experience. We had the CFO on on my team was the CFO of our health plan. We've got medical directors who led clinically integrated networks in other markets uh, who are now at, at Ochsner. We've got really talented data and analytics folks. So, so we have a real significant and deep bench of leaders. And really, as we've moved from driving the success of Auctioner to really trying to drive the success of community physicians who have aligned with us through our networks, the value of leadership to create a shared vision to explain in a credible way tactics, to design programs and bring those programs alongside these providers in a, in a coordinated way is just absolutely critical. And I think we're still on that journey, but we've had some success. To your question about whether we've reached a tipping point at Auctioner. I think we're close. And the reason I say that is you mentioned the titles that I carry. The, the newest one it represents uh, really the, le- uh, the leadership role over a new kind of vertical of our business. We've kind of reorganized the auctioner Health business into kind of three verticals. Our, our traditional care delivery vertical, which is really our clinics and our hospitals and how they, they operate. The second business, which I help lead, is our risk operations and insurance business. And then the third is our digital services company and business, and it has its own leader. And obviously, there's interactions between those businesses. I think that signals the importance to our organization of this work. And so, so from that perspective, maybe you could say that we've hit a bit of a tipping point. That said, there's still a significant focus on volume-oriented, fee-for-service Specialty driven, facility driven care that represents much of our legacy business as an academic medical center. And so I would say we haven't tipped to the point where we've oriented our whole organization around value because too much of our business is referral business, is, is oriented toward tertiary and quaternary care. And we still recruit physicians somewhat opportunistically who can drive a volume driven you know, value for, for the organization. So I wouldn't say we've oriented the whole business that way. But we certainly have seen enough success and and now count on that success financially to have designated the it as a business worthy of kind of equal importance to our our legacy business.
2: Well, David, I also wanted to ask you about employer-sponsored plans. You've been really an effective leader in designing and implementing population health products and strategy with employers and you know, nationwide. The adoption of employer-sponsored plans, which covers about 60% of the insured population in the U.S., has been really slow to adopt population health. While many insurance carriers claim that they have moved their commercial payment contracts past a certain critical threshold of value-based payment models, these payment models in large part still provide strong financial incentives for providers to increase service volumes rather than really enhance value and given their market size employer sponsored plans represent the chasm that needs to be crossed if the US health system aims to achieve the transformation to value based payment so you've been a national leader in demonstrating what success looks like and building. Partnerships with self-funded employers that bring about meaningful value creation for providers and patients. How have you been able to structure value-based arrangements with employer-sponsored plans that are truly aligned with providers to lower the total cost of care? And also, just based on what you're seeing in the national employer landscape, especially post-COVID, do you think employers now are willing to make bold decisions and benefit redesign? I mean, are we going to start seeing more narrow network offerings for commercially insured? And I'd love to hear your perspective on that, as well as if you could speak about the important agreement that you reached with Walmart to provide integrated, coordinated, high value care for employees across Louisiana. I think that was a big landmark achievement and our listeners would certainly want to know more about that as well.
1: So I think there's a lot here that we could, we could talk about. So our interest, obviously, once you build a coordinated care platform that is oriented towards risk, it's one thing to do that in the Medicare space. Obviously, you'd like to turn that asset to commercial relationships. And as you mentioned, uh, most of the commercial lives still come to us through an employer-sponsored either product or plan. So we'll start with the fully insured side, and we'll move to the self-funded in a minute. But Louisiana is a small employer market, and so many of the employers in Louisiana still access healthcare through fully insured plans. So there, we felt like it was really important to have products in the market that were built on our network. And so we've designed those products with the three major commercial carriers. With one of them, we actually have structured it as a joint venture, where we have the ability to participate in the underwriting margin of the product that sits. So to us, that is the ultimate solution for employers. obviously the product is built on a, a fee for service discount. The benefits are designed to keep as much of the care within that network as possible. and then we bring our, our care management care coordination efforts to play and have the ability to win you know two ways there. one uh, through steerage of more care within our system. and even though it's discounted, it's still profitable care at a fee for service perspective. But then, second, again, the ability to participate in the in the insurance profit and/or losses of of the product. So it aligns our ability and our desire to kind of manage the care of these patients and members to keep them healthy, but also gives us a steerage opportunity. And we and and we've been very successful at growing that product. And, And to your point, Eric. I think COVID and the economic pressures on employers have made that product specifically more attractive. But again, it's, a, it's it's focused on the small group market. We've had to build relationships with brokers and try to to make sure they were communicating the value of of that product in a meaningful way. And and certainly that's that's worked well for us on the self-funded side. I think it's been a lot harder to create the economic alignment that we want because I think still today employers who are self-funded believe that the savings that are generated for them are really theirs. They they frankly don't really want to share them. They believe that moving from a fully insured plan to a self-funded plan is the cause of those savings. And and so I think creating meaningful gain share opportunities there has been a bit of a struggle in all honesty. And I think, you know, the challenge for us is that, again, we offer fee-for-service discounts. To productize our network for a self-funded plan, what's always difficult is to understand how our product is going to be presented to employees. Is it going to sit alongside a competitor's near-network product? Is it going to be offered as a full replacement? Is it going to be offered alongside a PPO? And then, if and if so, is the full value of the near-network product going to be passed on to the employee or not? And so, there's a lot of analysis that has to go into that. What's the baseline uh, understanding of utilization for that group within our system? Are we essentially cannibalizing our own service offering and, and utilization by virtue of just giving a deeper discount for that? Or Are we actually going to grow new business? That can be very difficult. It requires uh, participation of the employer to share claims data so that you can make those analysis. And I, and I think there, what we've tried to do is instead move in the interim to care management fees, so basically say, look, we have these assets that we bring to play. So yes, we give you a fee-for-service discount for services within our network, but here's what our primary care model looks like. Here's what our care coordination model looks like. Here's what our case management looks like. Here's what our telemedicine and digital services look like. Here's what our proactive outreach programs look like. And really to, to reward us for delivering those, we'd like to negotiate a, a care management fee to be paid as a PEPM for your employees who choose our product. And I think we have been successful at negotiating that with, with some of the employers. And so I'd say that's a work in progress. Walmart was interesting to us because I think Walmart, we see as a very innovative national employer. Obviously, they're doing a lot of things in the market. I think a couple of things they've done with us. One is we are participants in their Centers of Excellence program for uh, bariatrics and spine and joint. And so we do, we do see that as, a, as an interesting model, and I think we, we've won there by virtue of gaining access to patients outside of our traditional markets, which has been a win for us. I think their desire to also then take advantage of our network and productize that for their employees in Louisiana we see is a great thing. I'll be honest with you, it has not been as successful as I would have hoped by virtue of the fact that we only have about a thousand of their employees and the network product. That's probably too small to execute a significant value-based agreement. And so I think you know, we're in discussions with Walmart right now to try to expand the markets where their product is offered and, and to really talk to them about the benefit differential between their PPO and HMO products that sit alongside our narrow network product to try to create more steerage to get to a critical mass, to be able to execute a meaningful value-based agreement. They have shown a, a willingness and a desire to do that. I think the results for even that thousand members looks promising. It looks good. I think utilization is better on a risk-adjusted basis uh, within our product than in their other products. And so we're in active discussions to try to figure out how to take that relationship to the next level.
0: David, let's talk about as a healthcare leader, how your career has been exemplified by cultivating partnerships. So building on what you've talked about with Walmart in the book by Tracy Duberman and Robert Sachs called From Competition to Collaboration, you were a key contributor and much is written about the health ecosystem leadership model or HELM, which provides a model for providers and payers to co-develop a population health agenda that will improve patient outcomes The Helm approach is all about finding common ground and establishing win win partnerships. In the book, you're quoted as saying the thing that stymies progress the most in the health industry is a lack of understanding of each other's business objectives, priorities, and challenges. It is amazing the misperceptions that have been generated over decades that still persist today that are just factually incorrect. This statement, in my view, is spot on, and I'm fascinated by how you've been able to reshape misperceptions to foster cross-sector collaboration. In your 25-plus years in healthcare as a frontline provider, physician leader, health plan executive, and health system executive, you've really shown the rest of us that meaningful transformation of the United States healthcare system is a team sport. The ecosystem is simply too vast and complex to allow for significant success to occur in silos. As a member of Auctioner's senior management team, where you come from a payer background, can you share how that unique Perspective allowed you to anticipate potential obstacles, suggest methods to overcome roadblocks in pair conversations so that you could find a win win? And how were you able to get providers to actually trust pairs so that you can partner with them in a meaningful way?
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate the call out on my contribution to, to that really fascinating book and, and hope your listeners will, will take a look at that work. Look, I, I'd like to say that I had a grand vision early in my career that I was going to maneuver healthcare in such a way that I was going to sit in a variety of chairs that allowed me to deeply learn different components of the healthcare ecosystem or different sectors of that system. But but in, in all honesty, it happened largely through happenstance and probably was fostered by just a, a deep curiosity, right? I think at the end of the day, I would never have imagined 25 years ago that I would be doing what I am today. And it's a product of really just questioning the status quo and trying to understand how healthcare could be better, sometimes through the eyes of what my patients was experiencing, through what my private practice was experiencing at a health plan, what what it was experiencing in the era of the Affordable Care Act and, and the changing business model of insurance, that ensued. And today, really within a large growing integrated delivery network and delivery system at Auctioner, each of those learnings have allowed me to become a better leader. And so I'm better at it today than I was five years ago. And I was better five years ago than I was 10 years ago. And, and it's the sum of all those experiences. You know, what I do believe firmly is that no one sector of, of the healthcare ecosystem can create significant value alone. If you're simply a provider, you can deliver access and really compassionate care and and create really good diagnoses and take good care of people and help them live fulfilled lives. And you may not be able to create a business model that is sustainable if a payer doesn't create the right incentives to reward you for that. If you're a payer, you could have the best ideas around how you want to align payment models. But if you can't engage providers or, or, or kind of coerce providers to participate in them, you're not going to create value alone. Same for an employer. And so, I think as you start looking around the challenges in healthcare, you start wanting to be part of the solution. You know, I, I've often said in, in several interviews that one of the most meaningful conversations that I had along my own journey was a a conversation I had with Dr. Paul Grundy, who very involved in in the establishment of the patient-centered medical home model and was the global medical director for IBM. And when I was being recruited to leave private practice to go to Blue Cross Blue Shield of Louisiana to be their chief medical officer, I was really questioning whether that was gonna be a good move for me. And I happened to find myself at a dinner with, with Paul And after dinner, I pulled him inside. I said, Hey, can I ask you a question? I said, you know, here's this opportunity. And I'm not sure what, whether this is a good move for me or not. And he said, David, you know, I think we both agree that the United States healthcare system fails to predictably deliver the highest quality, high value care that's possible. Correct. And I said, correct. And he goes, well, once you agree with that fact, You have a binary decision. You can either choose to be part of the problem or you can be part of the solution. But you can't be both. And I think for for me, it was so clear in that moment that the only way that I was going to be able to impact healthcare in Louisiana to a degree that it was going to actually make a difference beyond my own personal gratification and beyond maybe the five to ten or 15,000 lives I was touching directly through the provision of healthcare, was to go to Blue Cross, the dominant commercial payer in the market, one and a half million lives in Louisiana, and take that platform and try to turn it into an engine to drive value. That was going to revolve around our ability to um, change the payment model, and then to go engage physicians in a discussion that was going to be new to them. And I think You asked, you know, how do you bring physicians along? I think physicians want to hear from physicians. Uh, I think physician leadership is really important in this value game. And so for someone that had a a bit of a, a clinical reputation for excellence, I hope, in Louisiana, you know, to be able to speak their language, but also be able to speak the insurance language, And to bring those together in a way where both sides felt like that there could be value creation was really a test of my own ability to to lead in this space. And I think the success I had there uh, really has propelled the rest of the career development that has ensued from that point. But I do think the key aspect to all of this is being curious enough to create enough understanding of, of the business objectives, the business challenges of different sectors to act as a go-between to create opportunities for value creation. And I think I've just been fortunate through a series of activities and uh, questions and putting myself in a position to learn in in a new way to actually find myself with a set of skills that I I didn't know were rare, right? I didn't know that there weren't thousands and thousands of leaders in the country who've spent time both as provider and payer who weren't working on this, and I think we need more of that, right? I think we need more physician voices who understand the payment model, who drive the payment model, and can help bring employers and payers and providers together in a meaningful way.
2: Well, David, your journey in value-based care transformation has been a remarkable one, and it's really interesting how you've spent your entire career, I think, I believe, outside of, you know, just your residency in Louisiana. I mean, you're so closely connected, you know, to the population in which you serve, and that has to be um, special, you know, to you as a physician and and a healthcare executive. Really having that altruistic contribution to advancing value based care in your state. And I wanted to ask you just how Louisiana is doing right now with regard to the pandemic. It was about a year ago where New Orleans was the epicenter of the coronavirus crisis, and You know, after more than a million people flocked to New Orleans to celebrate Mardi Gras. And this was a scary time with explosive growth in cases, which was accelerated by the city's poverty rate, the lack of affordable housing, the high rates of residents with pre-existing medical conditions. Can you describe how Oxner responded during this time of crisis? Were you able to bridge the digital divide in the community to effectively deploy telehealth capabilities. I'm really curious also how you were able to improve behavioral health in your community, especially in this time where there was increased stressors and and the the need to socially isolate for the sake of public health. I mean, you lead one of the most value-focused clinically integrated networks in the country, and you serve a population that's incredibly resilient, especially coming after disasters like Hurricane Katrina. And I'm just really curious if you could speak to how the confluence of organizational value strategy, crisis response, population health intervention, and community resilience all came together to really lift the community up and ameliorate the, the scourge of COVID-19.
1: Well, thanks for the question. I mean, it's just really, really hard to believe that it's just been a year, right? It seems like five or maybe ten years. Yeah, it was a really scary time. Obviously, New Orleans was one of the early epicenters. COVID really hit with a vengeance in New Orleans in the in the months of March and April. We had nearly a thousand inpatients with COVID across our system, which was terrifying. Our ICUs were full. We were standing up COVID positive. Bids and trying to secure the right staffing for that. And the operators at Auctioner, I just can't say enough about the work that they did. And the ability to do that is forged in a lot of experience with adversity. I think Hurricane Katrina being probably the poster child for that, you know, 15, 16 years ago when the city's healthcare ecosystem was decimated and auctioner was really the the only viable healthcare provider that was able to sustain itself during that time and really sustain the city. And I think many of the same folks who who led our organization through through Katrina are still in in leadership roles and operations roles across the organization. So there's a tremendous amount of resiliency within Ochsner itself, both on the provider side and the leadership side and on the operations side. So we were successful at weathering the storm uh, from an operation standpoint. We were successful at protecting our workforce. I think there was an article written uh, about auctioner. We lost no nurses to COVID throughout this pandemic, which is just incredible. Given the large number of nurses who actually succumbed to COVID uh, by virtue of being exposed while taking care of patients, we had no deaths on the part of our nursing staff. And I think that, you know, our supply chain, the, the work they did to make sure we had it Plenty of PPE to help keep our employees safe was just heroic. So so I think the organization did a lot of things to to kind of take care of the inpatient capacity. I think on the outpatient side, you mentioned uh, telemedicine and virtual medicine. I think we were very well poised to rapidly pivot to a virtual care model, especially for our vulnerable patients. We turned on telemedicine as the primary channel for certainly primary care and, and completed well over 100,000 visits. I think if you look at it, the year before, we may have done 3,000 telemedicine visits in primary care, and, and now we, we were doing 100,000. So we stayed connected. We also have a digital medicine program that's fairly mature. So we have a digital hypertension and a digital diabetes program that allow for, frankly, full service virtual remote monitoring and management of these two common chronic diseases, and those rolled on. Uh, despite the pandemic. Uh, That's a really significant part of our model for managing chronic disease, where we take patients and use wearables and Bluetooth-enabled devices and pair them with health coaches and pharmacists to use evidence-based care guidelines to both engage them and to manage and titrate medications and get really tremendous results. So we were able to continue to manage chronic disease. We were able to continue to stay connected via virtual models, and, and we extended those virtual models to include behavioral health, as you mentioned. So all of that was great. I think um, one of the things that we saw and, and contributed to the world's literature on though that was, wasn't great was the relatively significant impact that COVID had on disparate populations and disadvantaged populations. And I think we were, I think, the first organization to report our inpatient experience in, in the New England Journal of Medicine which showed that 75% of the admissions were in African-American and minority populations. 70% of the deaths were in those populations. Interestingly, the chance of dying if you were admitted to the hospital at Oxnard with COVID was no different if you were white or black but a greater percentage of patients being admitted and therefore a greater percentage of the deaths were in minority populations. And I think it really has opened our eyes to the fact that Louisiana is 49th or 50th in health status for a reason. And that reason is largely driven by things that are not easily solved for in the traditional delivery model, right? They're not things that health systems, even world-class health systems like Auctioner necessarily solved because they're really social factors, their poverty, their educational challenges, their healthcare literacy issues, there's access, sure, especially to high quality and comprehensive primary care. And I think coming out of our experience with COVID, our organization has really doubled down on its desire to drive a better health status for the for the state of Louisiana. So you mentioned you know I've spent my entire professional career in Louisiana. Well, what better state to do that in, right? If, you, if you're a population health value-based care guy, then you want to go where it's, you know, there, there's the biggest opportunity. And certainly when you're 49 or 50, there's endless opportunity. But what we've seen is that as Oxford's grown to be a statewide health system, the reality is that if Louisiana remains 49 or 50, in some ways we've failed. And I think it's, it's caused us to reevaluate what we need to be for the state of Louisiana And it's not just a hospital and group of providers, or even, frankly, value based care providers. We're going to have to figure out how to be a catalyst for healthcare policy change, for governmental influence change, for private investment change for aggregating community assets to deal with social determinants how do we use our position in the market to drive a coordinated approach and so to our credit and to the ceo's credit at oxford warner thomas we launched an initiative called 40 by 30 and that is that over the next decade our goal is to move louisiana from 50 to 40 and we know that we won't do it ourselves and we w- we know we won't even do it being a great delivery system But we'll do it by maybe uh, contributing to uh, data aggregation. We've committed to investing $100 million into the development of community health centers that'll be stood up in care deserts and underserved areas. And we've we've got plans uh, for 15 of those. And we've, I think, opened the first four of those already. We are committed to workforce development and expanding nursing school capacity with several partners. We are going to be funding uh, medical school education for providers who are willing to commit to a career in primary care or behavioral health to kind of grow the workforce that'll hopefully you know equal greater access. We've built a, our first charter school to try to contribute to the education reform and, and to offer new opportunities there. And so you're seeing auctioner do things that are very very different than what we've traditionally done. You know we're not just opening clinics and hospitals anymore. we're, we're really spending a lot of time, effort, and money in the community. And I I think you'll see more and more folks come alongside that. And I think COVID has really been a a bellwether event for the country, but certainly for Louisiana to say, hey, it shouldn't take a pandemic to have taught us this, but it has. And now that we've learned the lesson again, I'll go back to Dr. Grundy. You can either be part of the problem, part of the solution. And I'm really proud to say that I'm in an organization that has clearly demonstrated um, a willingness and a desire to be part of the solution.
0: David, I love how you shared the story of auctioners willingness, its ideals around bringing about the solution healing to Louisianans during and after this terrible crisis. And I'd like to think about your providers that work for you. I mean, they're part of this community too, and they're on the front lines in primary care. And this medical industrial complex where they work, it's largely driven by fee for service. Primary care physicians specifically feel undervalued. They are undervalued. They're relegated to the bottom of the physician cultural hierarchy, and they feel frustrated and marginalized. And it's been projected that burnout's affecting over half of primary care physicians in practice, and some PCPs are even going as far as to say the profession is dealing with moral injury because the word burnout is insulting and insufficient to describe the pain they feel. When the system prevents doctors from doing what's right for delivering the best patient centered care possible to improve outcomes. Given the national plight of physician burnout, how does Auctioner keep its physicians engaged in population health so they can connect to patients more altruistically and less transactionally? And given this deep connection that your physicians have to the community because of this community culture you've built that you're continuing to build, how have they been better prepared to deal with the emotional toll? Of treating COVID patients
1: dealing with serious illness? We've got incredible physicians and the group practice culture attracts a unique physician type, right? I I would say we're not filled with entrepreneurial, individualized physicians, you know, people who like to, to control their own destiny, who like to run a business themselves and have flexibility and also have the ability to maximize revenue through whatever they choose to do. I think, you know, when you join a group practice, you kind of are willing to set your own personal agenda aside to be part of a team. And so I, I think there's a, you know, there is a value to the culture and we attract a specific type of physician that I think is aligned with both a culture of, of teamwork, but also a, a team that's oriented towards the community. But by virtue of OXTER's longstanding standing role in the community, our relationship with some of the community treasures like the saints and the Pelicans and, and, and I think in our role after Katrina. And so I think there's a kind of the group practice plus auctioner's relationship is really attractive to a bunch of physicians. But I don't think it's sufficient enough to deal with what you what you asked about. I think moral injury is the right term. I think it represents the disconnect between the highest ideals of the profession and what they find themselves actually doing today. And, and I think we have thrown a lot even at our own physicians. You know, Certainly, uh, they're subject to quality measures. They're subject to endless hours inside an electronic medical record. They're subject to best practice alerts popping up and, and prompting them and nudging them. They're, they're subject to coding and documentation efforts to support our, our Medicare risk business. They're increasingly accessible through uh, online scheduling to drive our consumerism agenda. They're being asked to return messages the same day to provide same day access. So we ask a lot of physicians and specifically primary care physicians. And I think for us to do that, we owe them a lot as well. And I think what we've tried to do is, is a few things. Number one, is we have tried to evolve their payment model away from RVUs, right? And so in primary care today, the base pay for our physicians is is market competitive, and it's driven 50% by panel and 50% by RVUs. And then uh, there's a large bonus component that's driven by value-based care performance, both quality and value-based care revenues, shared savings, capitation performance. And so the net is that we are trying to align directly the rewards with, with the work. And I think our physicians find that very attractive and it does value them. I think if you look at uh, what's happened to primary care compensation at Oxford relative to specialists, I think it's, it's accelerated. And I think we're net-net paying our primary care physicians significantly more today than we were 10 years ago. And we've changed their work and emphasize the components of their work that represent the value agenda over volume, right? The second thing we've done that's been really meaningful is to try to make their work easier. So we have surrounded them with things like refill clinics to take medication refills off the plate of clinicians. We've built care coordinators to do really care gap closure, pre-visit planning, bulk order outreach, to take kind of the rote quality agenda off the plates of physicians and really automate that and make that just happen on the side. Uh, We've tried to, to put better and actionable, more actionable information through workflows, not new workflows, right? So things that we can build as prompts in Epic are always going to be preferable to having them go to a different system. And, and we reject things that actually take physicians out of their core workflows and we'll wait until we can put that into their workflows. And then lastly, we we seek their feedback along the way. We, we rarely launch an initiative that's going to touch our physicians without the physician leadership of primary care weighing in and giving us feedback on on how that might be configured in a different way with the sensitivity toward the work that we're asking of our physicians. So all of that seems to be working because we're growing our primary care group. We're, we're at almost 250 physicians and about 100 plus APPs. And, and, and certainly that has grown logarithmically over the last several years. So I think we do have the right mix of payment model, and services to represent the right care model uh, for primary care. And I think that's driven a lot of our success.
2: Well, David, I know another thing that has driven your success and the success of Oxner has been technology and innovation. You've been very outspoken in the past about your views on precision health to address social determinants and improve value-based care outcomes. And this concept of precision health is... Broader than just genomics-driven care, it really reflects the need to tailor today's healthcare system to specific requirements of individuals at a time and place of their choosing. It's really about helping individuals thrive based on factors specific to them. It requires contextual knowledge about a patient's behaviors, their environment, genomics, and all of that. So I'm really interested in this concept of precision health, which focuses on preventing disease before it starts. And using the latest technology and tools to to advance that, you know, can you describe how Oxner utilizes a holistic approach that really focuses on keeping people healthy by personalizing the prevention and treatment of individuals? And are you getting to the point now where you might be able to start creating more personalized care pathways by leveraging... Such things as genomic sequencing, AI, biometric data from wearables, and so forth. You know, given the potential here in population health, I'm also curious as to your views as a physician leader. How does this align with evidence based care that really focuses on treating patients in a more standardized way, like you know, as they're all the same? I'm really interested in that intersection of precision health and evidence based care.
1: I'd say we're on a journey there, right? I, I think we do believe. That, so first of all, we do believe in evidence-based care, but to your point, the evidence base is largely driven by what works on cohorts of patients or, or groupings of patients. And I think technology and some care processes and work processes have allowed us to start to think about more individualized care plans and the collision of that with evidence-based care to me is, it's unclear how that's going to play out because I think in some ways, We'll be designing personalized care that's informed by the evidence, but in some ways we'll be creating new evidence by virtue of that of that model. So let me just start with a few initiatives that that get to your your answer. I'll, I'll say we haven't pulled this all together yet, so we're on a journey. But number one is understanding that social determinants, that the environment, really matters significantly to how people experience health or well-being and certainly how they either are or are not at risk for chronic conditions. And so we have turned on within EPIC our our EMR, our social determinants module now that really sends questionnaires to our patients. And we've completed over 100,000 social determinants questionnaires to date. And we will be collecting that information and doing several things with it. First, we'll use it to drive care processes like connecting patients through a platform that we use in Louisiana called Unitas uh, to community resources that can help deal with housing insecurity or food insecurity or transportation services needs, et cetera. So there's a, there's a care flow perspective to collecting that data. I think there's, a, there's another big uh, opportunity to include that data and to infuse that data into algorithmic predictive models that allow us to move beyond claims data or pure clinical data to predict illness and then ideally get upstream of that with targeted solutions. And so we have experience machine learning and AI and have built some clinical algorithms that have worked largely in the inpatient arena. I see some of the next generation of work being combining publicly available data, census block data, economic data, social determinants data that we've now collected with clinical and claims data and building new predictive models that'll allow us to be more precise in the intervention and the application of, say, care management, case management activities. So I think that's to come. We're also interested in thinking about how genomics can play a role. Certainly, there are some, we have a large number of French Canadians in South Louisiana. There's a a genetic condition, familial hypercholesterolemia, that's very prevalent in French Canadians. Obviously, there are many, many people with either heterozygous or homozygous FH who aren't diagnosed at an early age and who then go on to sustain, you know, catastrophic cardiovascular complications. And, and wouldn't it be neat if we had a way to offer, you know, genomic screening as part of a, of a wellness initiative uh, across Louisiana? And so we've started to think about and, and have actually created a partnership With a genomics company to offer population health based genomics testing. And I think we've just started that in a couple of our markets. And so we're early on dealing with things like privacy, how we handle the data, how we deliver genetic counseling once results are known. I mean, there's a bunch of mechanical, operational challenges to doing that. But I think we're learning quickly because we do think. Uh, some set of, uh, of genomic markers could be an important way for us to, to drive some population health initiatives in Louisiana. And so that work is happening. And then, probably lastly, I mentioned uh, digital medicine. We, several years ago, spun off a company at Auctioner, Innovation Auctioner, that was really built with a thesis that we wanted to redesign how we deliver care using digital tools to accomplish a couple of things. And we started with hypertension because it's the most prevalent chronic condition in the country. And if you think about how the average patient receives care for hypertension today, they come to the office, they may have sat in traffic, they have, may have had coffee, they come in, they sit down and the nurse immediately checks their blood pressure and it may be high. And maybe the blood pressure gets checked a few minutes later and it's still high and the person gets a prescription for a blood pressure medication and frequently says, you know, we'll see you back in six months. And they come back in six months and they have another couple of readings in the, in the office and their medicine is or isn't titrated. And, and that's kind of how care is delivered. Maybe there's some advice given on low sodium diet. Largely, it's going to be given in the form of written materials. And when you put all that together, you know, about 50% of the people with high blood pressure in the country don't have their blood pressure control. And so we think there's a different way to do that that's much more engaging. And number one, it's, it's really to have more data, right? So how do we do that? Well, we, we have a, an O-bar in our primary care clinics. That's our version of the Apple Genius Bar. It's, it's staffed with uh, professionals. We've got uh, iPads there. We've got about 100 healthcare apps that have been curated and are available. And, and for a patient who shows up there with a referral from his primary care physician for hypertension management, They'll get a, a $35 Bluetooth-enabled blood pressure cuff. We'll show them how to use it. We'll sync, we'll put a download an app on their phone. We'll sync the blood pressure cup up. And uh, we will get them enrolled in our digital medicine program. They'll then have an outreach from a health coach who'll introduce themselves in the program. We'll send them a set of questionnaires that'll be short text-based questionnaires where we collect information that are largely around their environment and their habits and their preferences and how they would like to to be engaged and then we'll start prompting them to send us blood pressures and we'll get about 16 to 20 blood pressure readings every month instead of two maybe every six months and so we start to to have access to more information we have health coaches that are engaging them we have a pharmacist who has a collaborative practice agreement with our primary care physicians using evidence-based care protocols to titrate medications and and by virtue of that Without them having to come back to the office, uh, we're able to get about 80% of them under control. The net promoter score of that program is about 85, which is off the charts for a healthcare experience. And the care is very personalized because we use nudges, we use a health coach meeting patients in their own environment and then taking their data from the home and integrating that into a care model. And it's just been very, very successful. And it's opened our eyes to this kind of new model for chronic disease management, where the the integration of, of coaching in the home and dealing with environmental stressors and putting all that into a context that engages patients in a more meaningful way Uh, and doesn't make them leave work to come to our clinics is really an attractive model. And so we've built that out for diabetes. We've built that out for COPD and asthma. We're building that out for back pain. And I think you'll see us uh, leverage that sort of care model to really drive a personalized yet evidence-based approach to chronic disease. So I know all of those things aren't exactly coordinated today, but they do represent our belief that we can personalize care even within a population health agenda. And we do believe that is the way of the future.
0: David, I love this vision that you're outlining for us. And as one of the top executives of a leading CIN in the country, you've got a unique perspective about the future of hospitals. And as care becomes more virtualized, as you're discussing and procedures shift more and more to ambulatory settings, we see that the hospital of the future being asset light a model where the focus would be on providing higher levels of emergency medical and surgical care with capacity weighted toward more intensive patient management, while the acute care facility would be supported by a network of connected and expanded ambulatory services, you know, op surge, pack services, home care, all enabled by remote monitoring technology. In this advent of clinical integration with more of an emphasis on ambulatory care and consumerism, how do you see the role of the hospital change where it's no longer at the pinnacle of care, but instead a pr- provider on the continuum? You know, Maybe just share more of, of your thoughts about moving away from this brick and mortar ambulatory care delivery over time to more digitalized platforms.
1: Yeah, I typically would say I share your vision uh, that you elucidated really well about the role of the hospital largely being around emergency services, surgical services, and intensive care, Right. COVID gave me pause. What if we had over the last 20 years shuttered a third of our hospital bids, right? What would we have done? And so I do think an open question is how do you deal with a pandemic that creates a short-term immediate surge in the need for inpatient hospital care that at the same time doesn't constrain all of our resources during non-pandemic times, and creates a more sustainable model. I don't have the answer to that other than we're going to have to have some flex capacity to take you know, post-acute or ambulatory care environments and transiently turn them into inpatient units if we were to ever deal with the next pandemic. And so, so I do think that's a big question mark that I have. Beyond that, I totally agree with you that we can't afford uh, the fixed cost asset heavy healthcare delivery system that has really been the hallmark of US healthcare for the last 100 years. It's just not it's not going to work if you look at the economic reality where the primary payer is Medicare that we talked about earlier on in the session where you looked around the constraint dollars in the Medicare trust fund when you look at you know the likelihood that that Medicare will have fewer dollars not more dollars to pay for care and most hospitals are operating on razor thin margins or even negative margins there just doesn't seem to be the ability to sustain that over time and so we uh, agree if you look at uh, what we've done uh, number 1 we do function as a health system and have rationalized services so we don't provide all acute care services across all of our hospitals. And we've started to co-locate services in centers of excellence uh, that that makes it viable to do it uh, in a cost-effective way and also creates a set of expertise that creates a market competitive advantage for us. So number one, I think rationalizing services across hospitals makes sense. Number two, we've not invested in really new hospital beds other than at our main campus. And that's driven by the fact that annually we receive ten to 11,000 transfers from remote hospitals to receive tertiary and quaternary care. And so I do think that the academic medical centers may be the one place where we need to build out bed capacity, because I think you're right. I think doing some of these sorts of services in the average community hospital probably don't make sense long term. And we need to send patients to the highest level of care for very, very complex conditions. So we have built out hospital bids on our main campus, but across our community hospitals, our investment, you know, we're not investing in inpatient capacity. Sure, we've retrofitted some, you know, semi-private rooms into private rooms and we've reconfigured spaces, but we're not building new hospital bids. But we are building a ton of ambulatory capacity, both ambulatory surgery centers, uh, imaging centers, lab capacity, and then multi-specialty clinics, post-acute behavioral health um, assets uh, have been areas of interest and investment for us. So we do agree that the future is in the ambulatory space. And we're actually really interested in non-contiguous geographic growth using an ambulatory-only model. I think historically, our growth into markets, both in Louisiana and Mississippi, have, have been driven by hospital partnerships. And although I think those have worked well for us in the future, you'll likely see us trying to do this in an ambulatory way and partnering with local hospitals to deliver inpatient care, but really focusing on an ambulatory population health value oriented care model. And I think that's what we see the future requires.
2: Well, David, I I wanted to just wrap up our conversation today and and take the future one step forward in discussing more about this 40 by 30 vision. You mentioned this earlier and, you know, just to illuminate that more for our listeners. I mean, Louisiana, it's at the bottom of the country, placing, I think, 49th in the American health rankings uh, due to clinical, behavioral, environmental, and social factors in the state. You guys are dealing with a high percentage of children in poverty, people that smoke, obesity prevalence low birth weights high rates of cardiovascular disease and cancer deaths and there's this commitment that Oxner you know is driving forward to create and improve on health equity and serve the underserved with primary care and behavioral health services through your community health centers and and really create value based care transformation through workforce development. And I heard you in an interview talk about this and you know you wanted this to be your legacy in value-based care. So I'm really excited hearing about this investment of a hundred million dollars over the next five years to really bring this, uh, this transformation about. So I thought as we conclude our interview today, if maybe you could speak a little bit more about that and then what maybe some of our listeners can do as leaders of healthcare organizations in their own state, maybe how they could lead a similar effort towards value-based care transformation.
1: Yeah, well, thanks. And I think, you know, I'm really proud of this vision that has been really set forth for the state by our CEO, Warner Thomas. And I want to be clear that, that although I'm certainly aligned with it and, and my teams will play a big role in the execution of the strategy, this is the vision of Warner. And again, I think, you know, $100 million is probably a drop in the bucket. You're right. I mean, the problems are well chronicled in Louisiana and it's really a shame because uh, the people of Louisiana are some of the most gracious, welcoming, most fun-loving people in the world. Uh, the culture uh, in Louisiana is unique and amazing and and certainly many millions of people come to Louisiana every year to experience that. And so we don't think that that should come at the expense of not being a healthy state. And so we really want to change this and it's going to require more than 100 million, but 100 million is a significant statement. And I think, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric around making the state healthier. I think when you put resources behind it like this, it sends a different message. And we're already seeing the impacts of that with others coming out of the woodwork to kind of align with us. And I think, you know, some of the key activities, we, you know, Xavier University, a historically Black university in Louisiana, and Auctioner have teamed up to, to launch the Institute for Health Equity It's going to be led by Dr. Ebony Price-Haywood, who's a a colleague of mine who is a health economics outcomes researcher and internal medicine physician, African-American woman herself who has deep ties to Louisiana and who understands better than anyone the challenges of health in Louisiana. And we will launch a lot of initiatives to measure health inequity and to then apply solutions to it. So it's kind of our data-driven organizing effort to shine a light on opportunities, but it's gonna require lots of partnerships. Workforce development's a big part of it. We think allied health and nursing and physicians are a big piece, but also health coaches, community health workers, MAs, and we've opened programs in all of those to try to create uh, both an economic opportunity for disadvantaged people in Louisiana, but also create the workforce that is gonna be required to change the health status of, of Louisiana we have interested partners like blue cross and blue shield of louisiana and tulane university who want to contribute data both claims data and other data uh, to our efforts and and so there's a lot of enthusiasm already for this eric it's going to take a lot of time and effort but we didn't make it to the moon in 10 years without someone putting a stake in the ground and i think you know what we've tried to do is create for Louisiana, that same audacious kind of goal, which is to, you know, maybe we won't move at 10 points in 10 years, but if we moved at five points, it would still be successful. And so really excited and, and really hopeful that this will hearken a new future and a better future for the people of Louisiana.
2: Well, David, we couldn't be more excited here. And I think if anyone is going to win this race to value, it's going to be Oxner Health thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story and your journey to value. And we'll definitely look to stay tuned. And I'm so excited about this vision and the work that you guys are doing there.
1: Well, I really appreciate the kind words and I really appreciate the work you all are doing. I think providing this sort of a forum for folks like myself to share ideas and hopefully give uh, some energy and enthusiasm and support for others who are Fighting the good fight is a, is, is a real privilege and honor. So really thank you for everything you're doing and, and for healthcare and for the value agenda in the United States. Thanks a lot.